Chapter Twenty Four of Colonel Quaritch, V.C. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Colonel Quaritch, V.C. by H. Ryder Haggart. Chapter Twenty Four. Goodbye, my dear. Goodbye. When Edward Cossey had gone, Ida rose and put her hands to her head. So the blow had fallen, and the deed was done, and she was engaged to be married to Edward Cossey. And Harold Quaritch? Well, there must be an end to that. It was hard, too. Only a woman could know how hard. Ida was not a person with a long record of love affairs. Once, when she was twenty, she had had a proposal, which she had refused, and that was all. So it happened that when she became attached to Colonel Quaritch, she had found her heart for the first time and for a woman somewhat late in life. Consequently, her feelings were all the more profound, and so indeed was her grief at being forced not only to put it away, but to give herself to another man who was not agreeable to her. She was not a violent or ill-regulated woman like Mrs. Quest. She looked the facts in the face, recognized their meaning, and bowed before their inexorable logic. It seemed to her almost impossible that she could hope to avoid this marriage, and if that proved to be so, she might be relied upon to make the best of it. Scandal would, under any circumstances, never find a word to say against Ida, for she was not a person who would attempt to console herself for an unhappy marriage. But it was bitter, bitter as gall, to be thus forced to turn aside from her happiness, for she well knew that with Harold Quaritch her life would be very happy. And fit her shoulders to this heavy yoke. Well, she had saved the place to her father by it, and also to her descendants if she had any, and that was all that could be said for it. She thought and thought, wishing in the bitterness of her heart that she had never been born to come to such a heavy day, till at last she could think no more. The air of the room seemed to stifle her, though it was by no means overheated. She went to the window and looked out. It was a wild, wet evening, and the wind was driving the rain before it in sheets. In the west, the lurid light of the sinking sun stained the clouds blood red, and broke in flying arrows of ominous light upon the driving storms. But bad as the weather was, it attracted Ida. When the heart is heavy and torn by conflicting passions, it seems to answer to the call of the storm. And to long to lose its petty troubling in the turmoil of the rushing world, nature has many moods of which our own are but the echo and reflection, and she can be companionable when all human sympathy must fail. For she is our mother, from whom we come, to whom we go, and her arms are ever opened to clasp the children who can hear her voices. Drawn there too by an impulse which she could not have analyzed, Ida went upstairs. Put on a thick pair of boots, a mackintosh, and an old hat, and sallied out into the wind and wet. It was blowing big guns, and as the rain whirled down, the drops struck her face like spray. She crossed the bridge and went out into the parkland beyond. The air was full of dead leaves, and the grass rustled with them, for this was the first wind since the frost. The great boughs of the oaks rattled and groaned above her, and high overhead. Among the sullen clouds, a flight of wind-tossed rooks were being blown this way and that. Ida bent her tall frame against the rain and gale, 
and fought her way through it. At first she had no clear idea as to where she was going, but gradually, perhaps from custom, she took the path that ran across the fields to Honham Church. It was a beautiful old church, and had originally been built by the Boise family, and enlarged, particularly as regards the tower, which was one of the finest in the country, by the widow of one of the de la Moles, whose husband had fallen at Agincourt, as a memorial forever. There upon the porch were carved the hawks of the de la Moles, wreathed round with palms of victory, and there too within the chancel hung the warrior's helmet and his dinted shield. Nor was he alone, for all round lay the dust of the illustrious dead, come after the toil and struggle of their stormy lives, to rest within the walls of the old church. Some of them had monuments of alabaster, where they lay in effigy, their heads pillowed upon that of a conquered Saracen. Some had monuments of oak and brass, and some had no monuments at all, for the Puritans had ruthlessly destroyed them. But they were all nearly there, some twenty generations of the bearers of an ancient name, for even those of them who had perished on the scaffold had been born here for burial. The whole place was eloquent of the dead, and of the mournful lesson of mortality. From century to century the bearers of that name had walked in these fields, and lived in yonder castle, and looked upon the familiar swell of yonder ground, and the silver flash of yonder river, and now their dust was gathered here, and all the turmoil of their lives was lost in the silence of their narrow tomb. Ida loved the spot, hallowed to her not only by the altar of her faith, but the human associations that clung around and clothed it as the ivy clothed its walls. Here she had been christened, and here among her ancestors she hoped to be buried also. Here as a girl she used to creep in odd silence with her brother James, and look through the window, when the full moon was up, at the white figures stretched in their marble silence within. Here, too, she had sat Sunday after Sunday for more than twenty years, and stared at the quaint Latin inscriptions cut on marble slabs, which recorded the almost superhuman virtues of departed de la Moles of the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries, her own immediate ancestors. The place was familiar to her whole life. She had scarcely a recollection with which it was not in some way connected. It was not wonderful, therefore, that she loved it, and that in the trouble of her mind her feet shaped their course toward it. Presently she was in the churchyard, and taking her stand under the shelter of a line of Scotch firs, through which the gale sobbed and sang, leant against the side gate and looked. The scene was desolate enough. The rain dropped from the roof on to the sodden graves beneath, and ran in thin sheets down the flint facing of the tower. The dead leaves whirled and rattled in and about the empty porch, and over all shot one, red and angry arrow from the sinking sun. She stood in the wind and rain, and gazed at the old church that had seen the end of so many sorrows more bitter than her own, and the wreck of so many summers, till the darkness began to close round her like a pall, while the wind sung the requiem of her hopes. She was not of a desponding or pessimistic character, but in that bitter hour she found it in her heart to wish, as most people have done at one time or another in their lives, that the tragedy were over and the curtain had fallen, and that she lay beneath those dripping sods without sight or hearing, without hope or dread. 
It seemed to her that the hereafter must indeed be terrible if it outweighs the sorrows of the here. And there, poor woman, she thought of the long years between her and rest, and leaning her head against the gatepost, she began to cry bitterly in the gloom. Presently she stopped crying with a start and looked up, for she felt that she was no longer alone. Her instinct had not deceived her, for there, not more than two paces from her in the shadow of the fir-trees, was the figure of a man. Just then he took a step to the left, which brought his figure against the sky, and Ida's heart stood still, for she saw who it was now. It was Harold Quaritch, the man over whose loss she had been weeping. "'It's deuced odd,' she heard him saying, for she was to leeward of him. "'But I could have sworn that I heard somebody sobbing. I suppose it was the wind.' Ida's first idea was flight, and she made a movement for that purpose, and in doing so tripped over a stick and nearly fell. In a minute he was by her side. She was caught, and perhaps she was not altogether sorry, especially as she had tried to get away. "'Who is it? What is the matter?' said the Colonel, lighting a fusée under her nose. It was one of those flaming fusées, and burnt with a blue light, showing Ida's tall figure and her beautiful face, all stained with grief and tears, her wet mackintosh and the gatepost against which she had been leaning, everything. "'Why, Ida,' he said in amaze, "'what are you doing here, crying too?' "'I am not crying,' she said with a sob. "'It's, it's the rain has made my face wet.' Just then the light burnt out and he dropped it. "'What is it, dear, what is it?' he said in great distress. For the sight of her alone in the wet and dark, in tears, moved him beyond himself, and indeed he would have been no man if it had not. She tried to answer, but poor thing, she could not, and in another minute, to tell the honest truth, she had exchanged the gatepost for Harold's broad shoulder, and was finishing her cry there. Now to see a young and pretty woman weeping, more especially if she happens to be weeping in your arms, is a very trying thing. It is trying, even if you don't happen to be in love with her at all. But if you are in love with her, however little, it is dreadful. Whereas if, as in the present case, you happen to worship her, more, perhaps, than it is good to worship any fallible human creature, then the sight is positively overwhelming. And so, indeed, it proved in the present instance. The colonel could not bear it, but lifting her head from his shoulder, he kissed her sweet face again and again. Now nature has generally a remedy for most ills, if only the physician knew where to look for it, and there is no doubt that this sort of treatment has before now proved efficacious in many similar cases. At any rate, it answered here, for presently Ida grew quieter. Don't, she said feebly, a phrase common to the sex in such circumstances from duchess to milkmaids and one full of human nature. "'What is it, darling?' he said. "'What is the matter?' "'Leave go of me. I will tell you,' she answered. He obeyed, though with some unwillingness, for the situation was not without its charms. She hunted for her handkerchief and wiped her eyes, and then at last she spoke. "'I am engaged to be married,' she said in a low voice, "'to Mr. Cossey.' Then, for about the first time in his life, Harold Quaritch swore violently in the presence of a lady. Oh, blank it all, he said. She took no notice of the strength of the language, 
Perhaps, indeed, she re-echoed it in some feminine equivalent. It is true, she said with a sigh. I, I knew that it would come. Those dreadful things always do. And it was not my fault. I am sure that you will always remember that. I had to do it. He advanced the money on the express condition, and even if I could pay back the money, I suppose that I should be bound to carry out the bargain. It is not the money that he wants, but his bond. Curse him for an infernal Shylock, said Harold again, and he groaned in his bitterness and jealousy. Is there anything to be done? He asked presently, in a harsh voice, for he was very hard hit. Nothing, she answered sadly. I do not see what can help us unless the man died, she said, and that is not likely. Harold, she went on, addressing him for the first time in her life by his Christian name, for she felt that after crying upon a man's shoulder, it is ridiculous to scruple about calling him by his name. Harold, there is no help for it. I did it myself. Remember, because I told you, I do not think that any one woman has a right to place her individual happiness before the welfare of her family. And I am only sorry, she added, her voice breaking a little, that what I have done should bring suffering upon you. He groaned again, but said nothing. We must try to forget, she went on wildly. No, 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 I know that it is not possible that we should forget. You won't forget me, Harold, will you? And though it must be all over between us, we must never speak like this again, never. You will always know that I have not forgotten you. Will you not? But that I think of you always. There is no fear of my forgetting, he said, and I am selfish enough to hope that you will think of me at times, dear. Yes, indeed I will. We all have our burdens to bear. It is a hard world, and we must bear them. And it will all be the same in the end, in just a few years. I dare say these dead people here have felt the same, and how quiet they are. And perhaps they may be something beyond, where things are not so. Who can say? You won't go away from this place, Harold, will you? Not until I am married at any rate. Perhaps you had better go then. Say that you won't go till then, and you will let me see you sometimes. It is such a comfort to see you. I should have gone, certainly, he said, to New Zealand, probably. But if you wish it, I will stop for the present. Thank you, and now good-bye, my dear, good-bye. No, don't come with me. I can find my own way home. And now, why do you wait? Good-bye, good-bye forever in this way. Yes, kiss me once, and swear that you will never forget me. Marry if you wish to, but don't forget me, Harold. Forgive me for speaking so plainly, but I speak as one about to die to you, and I wish things to be clear. I shall never marry, and I shall never forget you, he answered. Good-bye, my love, good-bye. In another minute she had vanished into the storm and rain, out of his sight and out of his life, but not out of his heart. And he, too, turned and went his way into the wild and lonely night. An hour afterward Ida came down into the drawing-room, dressed for dinner, looking rather pale, but otherwise quite herself. Presently the old squire arrived. He had been attending a magistrate's meeting in a neighbouring town, and had only just got home. "'Why, Ida,' he said, "'I could not find you anywhere. I met George as I was driving from Boisingham, and he told me that he saw you walking through the park.' "'Did he?' she answered indifferently. "'Yes, I have been out. It was so stuffy indoors, father,' she went on with a change of tone. 
I have something to tell you. I am engaged to be married. He looked at her curiously, and then said quietly, the squire was always quiet in any matter of real emergency. Indeed, my dear, that is a serious matter. However, speaking offhand, I think that, notwithstanding the disparity of age, Quaritch— No, no, she said, wincing visibly. I am not engaged to Colonel Quaritch. I am engaged to Mr. Cossey. Oh, he said, oh, indeed. I thought from what I saw that, that— At this moment the servant announced dinner. Well, never mind about it now, father, she said. I am tired and I want my dinner. Mr. Cossey is coming to see you tomorrow, and we can talk about it afterward. And though the squire thought about it a good deal, he made no further allusion to the subject that night. End of chapter 24